Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the greatest games on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson. With us today is Melissa Reddy, senior football correspondent at The Independent, author of the newly released book Believe Us, how Jurgen Klopp transformed Liverpool into title winners and host of the new podcast Between the Lines. Melissa, lovely to have you on the podcast. It's great to be on it and to be talking about a very good game. <laughs> well, let's there's, get there's to that no straight bad away. Games on this podcast, though, is there? <laughs> well, there's some there's some less entertaining ones, shall we say? But you picked a very a very entertaining one. There's there's no doubt about that. We go back to the 14th of January 2018 for this one. Liverpool four, Manchester City three. Melissa, why have you chosen this game? Well, apart from some of my other choices being taken. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think this game represents so many things. A transition for Liverpool from the old sort of side that needed to win games by hurting the opposition with attacking blitzes, which happened in this game. The defensively frail Liverpool, again, seen in this game. Um, The Liverpool that were chasing Man City. I think after this victory, they were still 15 points behind them. To the Liverpool that then becomes quite steely, learns 500 different ways to win, uh, to borrow Jürgen Klopp's <laughs> phrase. Um, and also then becomes the team that Manchester City need to chase. This game represents quite a bit of, of old and new for Liverpool and I think for the the top of the table and the race between the two teams in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't have summarised it better than myself. <laughs> I mean, yeah, a lot going on in this game, Jonathan, on the pitch, of course. But yeah, what Melissa's saying there is that actually when you look back at this game, you know, it was only sort of two and a half years ago. Quite a lot's happened since then. Yeah, it really has. I mean, that, that, that was sort of what, what struck me when, when looking back at it, that... Uh, I mean, even you look at the Liverpool midfield and you've got Emre Chan in there and it would have taken me a long time to remember that he'd been part of this game. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I, th- I think it is one of those games that in 20 years we'll, we'll look back to as this This is one of those points where two arcs cross or two arcs meet. And I guess there's then a, a period of maybe 18 months before they actually start to cross. But this is the real beginning of thinking, you know, actually, maybe Liverpool can match City and then surpassed them. And, and of course, there was a lot going on at Manchester City as well. Pep Guardiola, Melissa, had really got in his groove by this point. Man City would go on, win the league very comfortably, um, as, as you sort of alluded to earlier. And uh, Man City, they were so dominant this season, and especially in that early part of the season as well. You know, everyone thought they were going to go the whole season undefeated. Yeah, they had the sense of invincibility 
about them and Liverpool actually delivered their first defeat of the season which for a long time didn't look like it it, it just you couldn't imagine you couldn't fathom City losing a game that's how strong they were but also it felt rhythmic that Mm. that losing just wasn't a habit they had at all um and they were not just winning games you know by attrition they were blowing teams apart and this fixture is always the one that they detest the most city they they don't like facing <laughs> liverpool but conversely liverpool yeah. don't like facing man city. yeah that's right <laughs> um and even in the, the recent fixture both managers spoke about you know every game in the premier league is challenging but this is the one in terms of tactically, in terms of preparation, that does exact the most out of you and then takes the most out of the players uh, in the game itself. The other interesting thing is, um, you know, obviously City, like you say, are supreme at this point. um, And Liverpool have just lost Felipe Coutinho, which... Mm. When you say that now, it doesn't sound a big thing because we know everything that's happened since. But at the point they lose him, he's their gold dust. He's their star player. He'd given five years of service. And lots of people were wondering, how do you survive without the Brazilian? Because so much of the creativity centered around him. And Liverpool had signed Virgil van Dijk. But he was missing with a tight hamstring, if I'm recalling correctly. And so, you you know, when Coutinho went, it was like, oh, well, Van Dijk's in. So fans were happy about that. And then you're facing the best team in the country (laughs) in absolutely scintillating form without your player that you've just lost. And the new one that's come in that you were all excited about is unavailable as well. Um, So, yeah, loads of little narratives building up to this Mm -hmm. game. Yeah, Jonathan, it was a bit of a restructuring of the midfield with Katina going out. And in this game, they had Oxlade-Chamberlain, Emre Chan, and Genie Wijnaldum. With with Coutinho going, again, I suppose m- maybe I'm thinking too much ahead in the future here because obviously it just happened. But Liverpool seemed to have, have a little bit more industry, perhaps, in the midfield, maybe, when Coutinho left. Um, Is that right? I, well, I'm sort of, there's, as I'm... there's a change of emphasis, certainly. Yeah. That, that, um... And, you know, Klopp had said when back in the Dortmund days, the, the, the greatest playmaker is gegenpressing. And and this is sort of the, the full conversion to that. Mm. That you know, you're taking out an out-and-out creator in midfield and you're you're going for structure, you're going for the three to, to be aggressive, to, to, to have the right shape, to press in the right way. And, you know, this is right. Coutinho leaving at the time seemed enormous. It seemed like... Not quite a recapitulation of all Rafa Benitez's problems of every time he gets a team together, he has to sell one of the best players. But it did sort of seem like, oh, there's Liverpool having to sell a good player again. And of course, it turns out... They got out, a fair penny for him, though. Well, they got a fair penny, and, and that money allows them to bring in Van Dijk and then Alisson the following summer. Mm. And those two upgrades are absolutely central in the rise of Liverpool. And it's one of the great ironies of, of history that PSG signing of Neymar the one, the only club that benefits from that in the end is Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 world record transfer fee leads to Liverpool winning the Champions League and then the Premier League in a very indirect way. PSG didn't benefit from it. Barcelona wasted all the money 
half of it on Coutinho, or maybe not quite a third of it on Coutinho. Uh-huh. Um, and, but Liverpool were the great beneficiaries by spending it so in such a targeted way on two players who were who were so right for what they needed to do. Mm. And Melissa, what, Jurgen Klopp has a good record against Pep Guardiola. And his teams, as you say, you know, they, they didn't like playing against Man City. But I would say that in this fixture and then and then later down the line, was it the quarterfinal of the Champions League, if I remember correctly? Um, the way Liverpool... They, Klopp set up his team. He knew how to play against this Guardiola side because they were so dominant, as you say, and they weren't just... Um, just it wasn't a, a, a sort of a case of attrition with Man City. They were just imperious. Whereas Jurgen Klopp seemed to have a bit of kryptonite up his sleeve. Yeah, City we've seen I think quite a bit do not like teams that are quite aggressive against them and who press them hard and who don't show them the sort of reverence I think that they're used to and that they deserve because they are an incredible footballing side. And when you have the players that Liverpool have who are so skilled in transition and who can be so offensively strong, I think it gives the manager the courage to then, you know, take quite a a brave approach against a team that, if you don't get the bravery right, will make you look very, very silly. Um, mm. And the other thing is, I think... Guardiola, because he's always said Liverpool are the best team he knows in tr- in transition, or Jurgen Klopp sides in general in transition are ridiculous. They focus a lot on that element, but while he also admits that when Liverpool are in that form in transition, there's really nothing you can do to stop them. Um, and I think what we find in all the games that these teams have played regardless of the score lines in them, like even if you think of the, the 5-0 earlier in the season, Sadio Mane gets sent off, but before that, it's so well-matched, it's so close, it's so tight. You talk about the, the Champions League quarterfinals at the Etihad, that first half felt like Liverpool were in the centre of a hurricane, and everyone sitting in that stadium had no clue how they'd survived and actually gone on to win that game and the tie. Because it was just ridiculous what was happening in front of us. Um, the intensity and stuff as well suits Liverpool, suits young Klopp's sides. Um, and I think so much of it is psychological. The fact that City know that Klopp will go all out, that Liverpool will be quite courageous, um, that there won't be... Well, this set the foundation for the quarterfinal, I think, in that yeah. first leg in the Champions League. Manchester City, they just—I mean—they just crapped themselves, didn't they? When Liverpool were going full throttle, and Anfield was rocket. I remember there was lots of um, controversy around Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's um, selection. People couldn't understand why Ox was selected. Um, he hadn't really done a lot since moving from Arsenal to sort of, you know, for, for fans to be overly excited by his addition in the in the eleven. And, but what he does, those driving runs, both in this game and in the Champions League quarterfinal, really carry out Liverpool's front foot progressive, aggressive approach. 
Yeah, I mean, when he uh, we'll talk about the game in the second half, I don't want to jump ahead, but if I may, just for a second, when he scores that first goal, I think Martin Tyler on the commentary, Jonathan says something along the lines of, "Oh, Alex Oxley Chamberlain comes alive." You know, it was that was a, a kind of a waking a, a waking moment for him in, in a Liverpool shirt. But it is that that mid that midfield three: Emery Chan slightly deeper, and Wijnaldum and Oxley Chamberlain again with those forward thrusting runs, which is we've seen with Klopp sides before. That's what he wants from his mid, uh, from his midfielders. Yeah, and I think as much as anything else, it's a City or, or Guardiola sides in general. They aren't used to teams doing that against them. Uh, and uh, you know, if you are, and I think the word, I think bravery is the right word. And Klopp's talked about that. There's no, there's no point sitting back because you, you're just hoping that City don't score. So you can take the game to them. Now that is high risk, and it, you might might end up getting beaten five 0 Okay, with ten men. Or getting beaten four 0 as they did last season, you know the, the, there is a, a huge downside risk. But if you can knock them off their stride, they are vulnerable. And Sir Klopp's record against Guardiola, I th- I think I'm right in saying he's. I mean, there might be managers who played two or three games against Guardiola, but anybody who's played any volume of games against Guardiola, Klopp's the only one with a positive record. And so in Germany, uh, it was four wins each, Dortmund against Bayern, which, given the stature of the two clubs. Is actually positive, and then you know he's he's maintained that positive record in England, and I, I so I, th- I think it is partly that um, you know the the the, the fact that it, it does unsettle the Guardiola side, who are just forcing situations they're not not used to, but also I think there's a there's a wider historical trend here, which is when Guardiola arrives at Barcelona in two thousand eight, his way of playing is utterly radical, utterly revolutionary, and opposing teams have have no idea how to deal with this. They're, they're doing something that nobody's ever seen before. Pressing as hard as that and then retaining the ball as well as that so that you could be a very, very good side and suddenly you've got 30% possession, 35% possession. And I remember, and I know we've talked about this before, but Michael Carrick after the 2009 Champions League final saying Manchester had lost their discipline completely because they, they felt humiliated not to have the ball. And their possession that game was something like 42%. But even that for United was so rare, they their heads went. They didn't know how to deal with it. Now, clearly, as time goes by, teams begin to accept you can play with 30% of the ball, and that is a viable way of playing. But then I think you also see this, this other strand, which is the, the German school of pressing, of which Klopp is clearly one of the leaders, and it, you know, what, exactly where you trace it from, but probably right back to 1984 to Ralph Rangnick when they play you know, the, the sixth division team he, he was player manager of near Stuttgart, when they play against Lobanovsky's Dynamo Kiev in a, a Dynamo were, were, were in Stuttgart doing their winter training. And that laser siege very, very slowly grows. And Rangnick and Klopp are the two people who really drive it forward. And even then, your know, Klopp says that um, Dortmund were beaten by Rangnick's Hoffenheim in 2009. I think they lost 4-1. And Klopp said, for all that he'd done before that and all the... Uh, the difference he made to the German mentality on pressing, German understanding of pressing with with his work at Mainz, with what he did on TV during the 2006 World Cup, he still says that 2009 defeat was a real sort of epiphany for him. Of Actually, we can go this far. And that German school of pressing over the last decade has, I think, supplanted the Spanish style of pressing. And this game clearly is, is a key part of that. Mm. All right, let's have a quick break and then we'll talk about the match itself. See you in a moment. 
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to the greatest games on the blizzard, everybody. So then, uh, Melissa, we come to the game itself. Uh, you know, as we say, Manchester City way ahead, uh, top of the league, uh, sitting pretty up there. Um, and I, I mean... I'm sure this would have been one of the fixtures that uh, Arsenal fans holding on to former glories were really crossing their fingers with, you know. Um, and, and of course, they got their wish. But but if you you know, looking at the two sides, the way they line up, I mean, you know, it's a wonderful Manchester City team. Um, but we should also mention that Mo Salah had uh, arrived at Liverpool in the summer of 2017 and was scoring goals for fun, and this game would be no exception. I, I, it's, it's, as I said, Jonathan says, so much happens. I didn't remember him being that good before he went to Liverpool, if I'm honest with you. Obviously, he had a, he had a decent time at Roma, but he came to the Premier League and he just lit the place up. Yeah, he, at Roma and at Fiorentina, what they found mm-hmm. was his ability to affect the game in the final third in so many different ways, not only in the tangible numbers in terms of assists and goals, but how he unsettled the opposition, because not only is he very quick, he's very strong and he's quite skillful as well. Um, he's got an eye for a pass. He His feet move seriously quickly as well, uh, not just when he's at full speed, but just, you know, dead still on the ball. Um, and what they'd also found, obviously, at the, the Chelsea spell is what most elite teams were judging Salah on because, you know, that's he came to the Premier League, he couldn't cut it. But that was the smallest data set available for him. Everywhere else, including, including when he was in Switzerland, he, his numbers were incredible. Um, and the expected goals and expected assists for him uh, were always lower than what he actually achieved. So they thought, here's a player with a high ceiling if all the right circumstances are there for him. And Liverpool had bought Sadio Mane the summer before. And what Sadio is really the first transformer of young Klopp's Liverpool because he shows them what speed and surety as an offensive player can do to your transition game, how much it can help it, how much having that outlet um, takes you to the next level. And so they wanted to replicate it on or have it on both flanks. And so Salah comes in. Obviously, the initial plan was to have um, Felipe Coutinho feeding them, which then wasn't the case anymore. Um, But yeah, like Mane, Salah immediately makes an impact with the difference being that he comes into a better side naturally because Sadio is already there. I think um, when Mane comes in, he's got to shoulder a lot of the attacking burden, whereas now there was a more even split. Mm. And Firmino, uh, as in between the two players as well, Jonathan, a crucial part of that. In Klopp in that front three has assembled one of the finest front threes 
certainly of the modern game, you know, you could even extend that further. But he, he liked Firmino. You know, Firmino had been there a little bit before Salah and Mane. Why, why do you think Klopp was was so intent on, on matching those two players with Firmino in that front line? I think Firmino's almost unique. Um, you know, when he started his career in, in Brazil, he, he, he was a defensive midfielder. Yeah, his his key attribute is his is his understanding of space and position. You know, he's a perfectly good finisher, but you know he's not an outstanding finisher. It's he 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 gets how you can manipulate space on the pitch, and that seems to have been something almost innate in him from from when he began playing football. Um, you know, he came through his you know his first European club was Hoffenheim, so he'd grown up in that that sort of hard pressing system. We knew he could press. So if you've got to and I, I think it's quite a modern idea, the idea you, you can put your goal scorers wide. And, mm. and I remember um, very occasionally, I mean, Alex Ferguson kind of hated talking to the press when it wasn't on his <laughs> terms. But every now and again, he'd let slip an insight where you'd suddenly go, oh, God, of course, it makes complete sense. And I think it must have been, must have been the run to the Champions League final in 2008 for United when uh, he... he in European games, he'd switch round Ronaldo and Rooney. So Ronaldo would play as a centre forward, dropping deep far more than he does now, and Rooney would play wide on the left. And the assumption was, and I'm sure it was initially for this reason, that that, that was because he didn't trust Ronaldo to track his fullback, whereas he knew Rooney would do the hard work, and he knew Rooney would never let a fullback get past him. But of course, he, Ferguson can't say that because he doesn't want to be seen to be slagging off Ronaldo. So he then says, well, you're talking about this, but actually this enhances Rooney as an attacker because he's attacking on the diagonal. He's coming in on a stronger foot. And if, you know, if, you're, if you're a forward attacking the inside of a fullback, you're attacking the fullback on the weaker side, and it's just basic geometry. You're creating extra space, extra acceleration room, because you're attacking on the hypotenuse, not, not on, the, on the straight. And as soon as somebody says that, you think, Oh, that's really obvious. Why is why why why, is, why haven't I thought of that before? Why why is, why why are we just talking about that as if it's normal? The, of course, you've created space yourself just by attacking at a diagonal, not not in a straight line. And so, if you put one of those on, on either side, and you remove from the centre forward the burden of having to lead the line and the burden of having to be the main goal scorer, and you say to him, "You you find your your space and your job. Sure, score goals. That's great, but." create space for these two that's a perfectly functioning forward line so I, I don't know whether this was something that was a great blueprint drawn up way in advance or whether this is something that kind of they, Liverpool felt their way towards but it has worked brilliantly and I can't think in the modern age of a front three that has functioned so well as a unit yeah I, I, yeah I, I, well, it, it's, the game you know gets underway and it's and it's sort of Again, from my memory and watching the highlights, Melissa, it's pretty frantic straight from the start, and it didn't really let up until the final whistle. It was extraordinary, ninety-four yeah. minutes or whatever it was. The this fixture is always like that. There was even, I think, a one-one draw at the Etihad that I'm recalling, and you think it's only one-one, so the score says it was just an average game. But I remember sitting there being so tired watching it and I can't imagine what the players felt like. And this one, I call it the do not blink fixture because if you 
take your eyes away from the game. You are missing something. You are missing either a really good pressing move or some sensational pass or a very clever use of space. There's always so much going on in this game. And at a supremely intense level, like it's it's always breathless. Um, and quite early on, Salah gets an opportunity, doesn't really come off. And <laughs> I remember thinking, this is just going to be one of those end-to-end, ridiculous, emotional roller coaster games. And even when Liverpool, in the second half, are in the ascendancy, you're still thinking, Manchester City mm. are getting opportunities, and they will get more opportunities, and this game is not done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we retreated to the first goal after nine minutes, Jonathan. There's been a bit of back and forth since then, as we mentioned earlier. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain was the man to get it, and that was it. Was a great moment for him, and it's a shame that injuries have have hampered him. Uh, well, throughout his career, but especially at Liverpool, but he he really started to look like a player, didn't he? In, uh, in these sort of games and in this season. Yeah, and again, I, I just think he was a perfect player for Liverpool, and, I, and yeah, hopefully. He will get over the injuries again, but you know, it, as each injury hits, you sort of you you know that the the chances of him coming back are, are reduced that much more. But but yeah, this game he was brilliant. I think he was I think he was the official man of the match in this game. But he yeah he clearly was he just had a brilliant game and um, part of that was you know, surging away from Fernandinho, which isn't easy. You know, Fernandinho is the master no. of a tactical foul, but he you know, he has the strength and the pace to get away from him. And then it's just a, one of those diagonal shots that initially when he takes it on, he says, oh, he's not going to score from there. And then because he catches it so cleanly, a wet surface, and it, it's just the angle's perfect. And you know, there's no way that Edison can get down to it. And a similar one, of course, he scored. in. The, I keep going on about that quarterfinal because there's so many parallels, but he did score a similar one in that game. Yeah, well. and the interesting thing is when Liverpool signed Oxlade-Chamberlain, I remember Thierry Henry saying, I don't actually know what he does. I don't know what he's good at. And I had recalled in 2008 or 2009, he described himself as a player to Arsenal's official website. And he said, you know, I love taking on opponents I love running with the ball um I am quite an explosive player that's when I feel at my most confident but I've been told to pass it short I'm learning how to pass it (laughs) short so what he I always when I saw that goal I remembered that interview that he gave describing himself as a player and I I must have tweeted or something because I had recalled it and said this is what Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain has always described himself as. And when Jonathan says he was the perfect player, it's because Liverpool's midfield was looking for that, was looking for that very aggressive ball carrier who also had, you know, the confidence to back himself to take on a shot like that. I think well, he's... He does, oh, sorry. Well, I, I think he's an interesting player in that... Uh, he, you know, he, he he is very obviously the product of an academy. You know, there's no rough edges to him, and the, 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 you know, in in many ways that's a great thing because he's sort of seven and a half, eight out of ten at everything. Maybe eight and a half at certain things, but it's very hard to to. I I, I also know what Thierry Henry means. It's 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 you can't really pin him down and say this this is what he's really good at. He's just sort of quite good at everything. Um, 
and I, I think one of the one of the issues that, that that we have with academies now is if you end up with eleven of those players in a team, you end up with a team that's a little bit bland. You need the Ordruff edge, and he's just one of those players who you can completely rely on him. He's not going to do anything daft. He's going to keep possession. He's going to score ten goals a season. He's going to be quick. He's going to you know, make those driving runs. But he's very unlikely to do something. Uh, there's not a huge amount of improvisation about him. Hmm. Well, you compare him to one of uh, Man City's numbers who who gets the equalising goal, let's say Leroy Sané. And again, <laughs> we can't say every incident that happened in the game, otherwise this podcast would be 90 <laughs> minutes long. But uh, well, Sané has a brilliant game, though. Yeah. yeah he, he does. He, he, I mean, he, he has a magnificent... I mean, yeah. Sorry, Marcus, go on. No, 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 but you, you're right. And I think that perhaps maybe with Sané, you know, more of an out-and-out winger, I suppose. He's a very tricky burst of pace. Perhaps England had seen one or two uh, very pacey wingers, not to the quality of, of Sané, but maybe people thought Oxlade-Chamberlain, oh, he's maybe one of those types of players, which, of course, as you say, Melissa, he never thought that, that he was and then became playing in, in the midfield. But fast-forwarding to, to the goal, Leroy Sané, um, something that, that 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 struck me as he as he smashed it past Carius at Carius's near post, and again it's Carius in goal. Um, and I don't want to be harsh on Carius. You know, he's goodness, he's suffered enough. You know, and and he is a good goalkeeper in his own right. Although I haven't seen him too much recently. But again, in the last couple of years, to not see Allison in goal for Liverpool, you think, well, yeah, there's there's. It's a little wonder that went in because when you have possibly the best goalkeeper in the world in the, between the sticks, it does make a huge difference, doesn't it? I remember, I think Alisson had played about six or seven games for Liverpool and a club legend was sitting in the row in front of me in the press box and it was midway through a game and he just got up and he said, how amazing is it to have a goalkeeper you can actually trust and rely on and you're never nervous when the ball goes anywhere close <laughs> to him. He's like, I, I can't remember what this feels like. This is this is just amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh-huh. that is the case. And it was Bruce Grobbelow. <laughs> <I'm joking. laughs> um, and yeah, with Alison, it's so safe. When I had watched the highlights back again and I remembered that, that Sane shot is incredibly powerful and so you feel Mm. a little bit guilty for saying he should do better but ultimately he should do better there yeah well you feel harsh for Karis because obviously what happened in the final and so on and so forth but I I completely agree oh I don't know I think you're being very harsh there do you think well okay so in some um beats Gomez twice and he beats Matip and suddenly Mm -hmm. he sort of materializes you know, if you, looking at it from Carrius's point of view, there shouldn't really be a threat. And then suddenly he's in the box. He's gone past Matip and and, and Gomez getting back. And you probably you slightly probably slightly unsighted as Gomez kind of cuts across. So suddenly there he is. I don't know, ten yards out, something like that. Mm. And then before you've had a chance almost to sort of realise there's a shooting opportunity there, the ball's been hit incredibly hard past you. And I think we've still got this thing of. Oh, keeper should never be beaten on a near post, as if that's some kind of ultimate crime. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you you do have to leave a little gap at your near post, you, you know. To, sure. If, if he'd been another half yard to his right, Carriers, 
there was suddenly there was a huge gap the other side, and that would have looked ridiculous as well. I, I, I think there comes a point at which you sort of think, you know, if a player suddenly hits a shot and you're not quite set for it, they go in quite a lot. <laughs> I don't really think... Well, if you, I mean, yeah, if, if, if you're saying I'm being a bit harsh to a goalkeeper, I've obviously got off got out on the wrong side of bed. <laughs> I need to I need to have a little rethink of what I'm doing here. Um but anyway one of the, one of the sorry, things Melissa. that the analyst had picked up was that his reaction time to things was not like he wasn't reacting as quickly as he ordinarily would or I think he Carrier suffered that broken hand and was then rushed back from it or came back probably a bit sooner than he should have. Um, and when he came back, there was a noted lack of confidence. The, the player that they brought in in preseason and the player post having come back from the broken hand was very different uh, mentally and then also in terms of the basics of his goalkeeping. And then I think it only progressively gets worse and then we have the the unfortunate circumstances for him in Kiev which yeah it feels I, I do blame him for that just to be clear <laughs> I think those were mistakes should he have saved that Gareth Bale overhead kick is that what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> maybe not that one but the other two certainly <laughs> oh dearie me but anyway back to this game so it, it, it's one all at half time and then after the break um, again, it's end to end, and so on, and 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 really, the, the game will be remembered for those um, what was sort of nine or ten minutes when uh, Roberto Firmino and and I agree, Jonathan. I know he's not the best finisher of all, but what a finish that! Yeah, was. I mean, we you shouldn't know, forget Ozamendi hit the bar before this. Well, I, he you know, did. I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a whole load of chances. I mean, this is how the memory plays tricks. So, yeah, my, my sort of memory was, yeah, not much happened mm. in the second half, suddenly bang, three goals in 10 minutes. No, no, a lot happened in the second half <laughs> and then bang, three goals in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Ode Mendy hits the bar, there's that Salah chance with a bouncing ball, there's um, uh, uh, Oxlade Chamberlain has a low shot saved at the near post. There's a whole load goes on. It's incredibly end to end, and then there's an Oxley Chamberlain three ball. Mino runs onto it, shrugs off John Stones. is a little bit weak, and then it's a really deft finish. Superb. That well, again, and this is where my memory had gone. When I first saw it, watching the highlights back, I'd sort of forgotten that was the goal. And I, and I when he hits it, I think oh, I was going wide. This this can't be the goal. And then he's got just enough curl on it and it's just going slow enough and it just bounces in. I think it does flick the yeah, inside of the post, the doesn't it? Yeah, it the post, yeah. Uh, but it's a, I mean, it's a brilliant... In terms of centre-forward, everything we've, I've said about Firmino, that he's not really a centre-forward. But that's that's brilliant centre-forward play, to shrug off a defender and then finish as deftly as that. Yeah, absolutely. And it would be two minutes later when Sadio Mane absolutely smashes one into the top corner. Well, he hits the post in, in that gap. <laughs> Well, yeah, sorry, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I'm dead. <laughs> you can't breathe, can you? Just assume between every moment we talk about, ladies and gentlemen, that a load of stuff happens as well. So, yeah, it's the post and then this, that, the other and, and whatnot. And then we finally get to the third goal where Sadio Mane sort of smashes it in. And it's one of those goals, Melissa, where the manner of it, to, to smack it into the top corner from, he's from a sort of standing yeah. position. Yeah, straight after the one that's gone 2-1, to make it 3-1, and it does feel like one of those 
moments where it's like we're here. This is this is Anfield. This is Liverpool. This is this is us kind of thing, and the fans go absolutely wild. Yeah, I think that's what you say. There is a fusion of everything coming together. So the the deafness of Firmino's finish, the electricity in the ground, and the way he celebrates as well. Like you know. Of course, like what what were you guys expecting? Of course, I was going to curl it off the post, um, and everybody's like bouncing off this. There's a big huddle, and then immediately Liverpool are absolutely on City, pressing relentlessly and stuff again. And Sadio, that's he's like you say, it is a standing finish, and he completely thunders mm. it. And it's again that non. Of of course, I've done that. Why wouldn't I have done that? And but the stadium was still completely intoxicated by Firmino's goal. So it was wild in there. It was loud. And I think the players feed off that so much that I don't want to get into behind closed doors too much, but the Crystal Palace game that they play um, just after Project Restart at Anfield, their ability to, to sort of press and attack in that game as though there were fans in that stadium was remarkable because I think they lose so much without that Anfield effect. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, I mean, I'm sort of reluctant to go on to the next goal, Jonathan, to fear of missing out on sort of various moments and so on. But it's it's 3-1 and Liverpool are in the ascendancy and then um, Edison makes a mistake and Edison, huge signing for Man City, of course. Uh, but an uncharacteristic uh, mistake. Well, it's uncharacteristic in the sense that it's uncharacteristic for him. Yeah. But there is a characteristic of Guardiola's sides that when things go wrong, mm. Mm. they go really wrong really quickly. So yep. you, you'd had the examples of uh, Bayern against both Real Madrid and against Barca of a clutch of goals in sort of 10 15 minutes, two or three goals in 10 15 minutes. Uh, you'd seen in, in Guardiola's first season when, when City lost to Leicester. A similar thing. I think it was three goals in the first twenty minutes of that game. We later this season, when they're two up against United and letting three in the first half of the second half. So there is something that happens to Guardiola teams where, and you know, we subsequently saw it with with Tottenham in in the um, in the semi final. Uh, sorry, in the quarter final. Quarter final. Um, when the, yeah, they they suddenly let in those two sun goals in the in the first ten minutes or whatever it was. There is a vulnerability there. Um, that they are prone to to letting goals in burst, and and the only sort of explanation I can I can think of for that is because they are so much of a machine, and they're so guided by the the philosophy and the theory that they're not a team that has natural leaders and improvisers on the pitch, and I think that's particularly true when when company isn't there, as he was not there in this game. Mm. they don't have anybody there and it's one of their strengths they don't have anybody there who who, when things are going wrong can grab a game go we're not losing this this isn't happening shut this down for 10 minutes and then reset and so once the wiring gets screwed they've got nowhere to go and so Edison here he could belt the ball at the touch but that's not what City do he could try and pick out a pass but his brain's a bit scrambled and he, he, he somehow lacks the confidence to do that so he he does this horrible sort of halfway thing of kicking it reasonably hard but low towards the halfway line and Salah picks it up and just pops it back over his head. And again, it's a brilliant finish. I mean, these are three magnificent finishes, mm. in, each in its own different way. 
So in that sense, you can say we're sitting a bit unlucky that Liverpool suddenly hit this 10 minutes where pretty much whatever they did flew in. But we'd seen it before, we would see it again. And it, and it happened in the in the quarterfinal as well, the, mm. the three goals in, in a very short short period of time. So, you know, Guardiola's team's clearly fundamentally brilliant, but that glitch is there. And and this this was it. Mm. We're talking about Liverpool's attacking your prowess here, Melissa. Obviously, we've we've seen that so many times since this game. But the one thing that they have improved, as you mentioned at the start, is is their ability to defend. And you know, four one up. And again, there's still various moments and so on happening in the game. They give themselves a bit of a what you might say an unnecessary scare, or that could be a touch harsh because we can't forget the the attacking quality that Manchester City have. But ultimately, they concede two goals. Bernardo Silva strokes one in uh, about five or six minutes to go, and then uh, Ilkay Gundogan uh, takes it really, really well. I mean, he shouldn't be given that time. You would you wouldn't think so close to um, the, the Liverpool goal. And it's funny because when you see Liverpool go 4-1 up, you think, oh, yeah, this is the Liverpool we've sort of come to know. But when you see them concede those two goals at the end, you think, oh, that's, again, it shows you an improvement of Jurgen Klopp's side in the last couple of years. Yeah, this, when I said at the start, Liverpool transitioning out of stuff, those attacking blitzes were often needed because at the other end of the pitch, they were so susceptible to be, you know, overawed because... Liverpool, a lot of the time, still operated on instinct rather than intelligence. So, you know, feeling the emotion of the game, the euphoria of the crowd, the fact that everything was going for them. Instead of, hey, we're 4-1 up, let's consolidate for a bit here. And this is quite an intense game. We are going to tire ourselves out, so let's just calm it down for a bit. No, not in their DNA at that point. (laughs) So they continue to go for it, leave themselves open, and City get back into the game. The other thing to say for that is, Jonathan's right in that City lose stability when they concede a goal. I think Guardiola's actually referenced that quite a bit, that they have that issue where... For those minutes after they've just conceded, they can't get things together quickly enough. And I think he's right in in the reasons he points out for that. I think we've also seen, rea- like you know, when a VAR decision goes against them or something like that, there's that inability to react or to react in the right way to it. Maybe because again, it's not part of the whole philosophy and system and uh, their conditioning. But they are such a phenomenal side that they will be opportunities and as we've detailed you know when we're talking about Liverpool's goals they did Otamendi had that chance so they they were alive in the game despite the scoreline and when you saw that Liverpool weren't getting any sort of grasp or control or just pause on the chaos you did think they're still going to get some goals here (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah, it's it's difficult to kind of kill off a Guardiola side completely, although they have done a couple of times, Jonathan. But you know, them coming back to to make it four three, one could say, oh well, it changed the it flatters uh, Man City a little bit in one sense because you know they were four one down, but in another sense, perhaps it was a fairer reflection actually in the ninety minutes. Yeah, it probably was in the end. Four three probably was a fair reflection. And you've got to remember as well, City had only dropped four points all season up until this game. And so to see them 
suddenly capitulate as they had in that ten minute spell. We didn't quite know what the reaction was going to be, and so I think for City to come back and score twice, although, I mean, I suppose if they got the third goal two or three minutes earlier, maybe it would have been a very nervous last five minutes. But so although they never really came close to getting the point, I think it did sort of say this ship's not going to be blown off course by that ten minutes. They are still City. They are. They might not get 110 points this season, but they're still going to get 100 points. Um, and the thing, the thing is as well, you know, these were numbers that we just weren't used to. You know, over the last three seasons, we've got used to the idea you need more than 95 points to win the league. That that had never been the case before. You know, if you look at the whole history of English football, I mean, okay, there's the Mourinho's Chelsea got the 90, 95 points was the previous record, wasn't it, in 2004-05. But that was exceptional. Mm. Uh, yeah, th- th- I mean, obviously it was the record, so it never, it never happened before. <laughs> um, so th- this was sort of, in, in some ways, quite a useful reset of saying, actually, the team is going to win the league. They are allowed to lose a game. They are allowed to, to have a, a bad match. <laughs> and if, if, they, if they lose by a single goal away at the team who ends up finishing fourth, that's just a normal thing in a normal season. I think it just it felt shocking. And actually, you know, the, the shock was right in that it, it did signal that things were changing. We'd, we'd see, we'd see that first of all in the quarterfinal, then the following season, and even more the season after that. But actually, you know, a, a, a team top of the league losing away at a team fourth in the league—that's that—that should be quite a standard thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melissa, just to finish, I, I'd just like to ask when you when you saw this game, you know, you, obviously Klopp had been at Liverpool. For, for a little bit of time before this match. And, you know, Liverpool were, were improving and this season was a huge stride forward to where they are now and where he wanted to be. Do, do you think that that this was a moment where, because as we say, Man City so dominant, Liverpool were so far behind in terms of points in the league table. Do you then have the following season, they just pip them. And then, of course, we have the season where Liverpool, one of the best seasons um, in, in top flight history, without a doubt. Do you think this was a moment where was, the tide was just perhaps beginning to turn? Because now, it's at the time of recording, as we say, um, Liverpool are the champions. They are the team to beat, and and Manchester City look a little bit off them. Do you think this was, a, the, the, or is that perhaps I'm looking at that rose tinted? No, the it is a very important game because it's the first one without Coutinho, and he wanted the players to show a reaction. These words to them were, don't give people on the outside a chance to say, you know, all your hopes and ambitions have left to Barcelona with Phil. Um, (laughs) And so it was really important to see how they reacted against the best team in the country, the benchmark setters. Also not having Virgil van Dijk against the best team in the country when everyone thought, here's the man that's going to come in and solve all your defensive problems. So that was an added thing for the players to mentally react to, which they did. I think the defensive deficiencies you still see from this game also convinced them we should be looking at Alisson because at this point, that was already something that was in progress. I know you know, people will think Kiev was the spark, but Liverpool had been looking at Alisson for a very long time. John Achterberg, their goalkeeping coach in particular. Um, and also the need, the necessity 
to be able to move away from those blitzes and be able to command and control games more. And I think if you look at Liverpool, the league winners, and Liverpool, the Champions League winners, and if you look at that final against Tottenham in Madrid, actually, they are mm-hmm. the antithesis of this Liverpool that went for 10 minutes <laughs> absolutely wild. Um <laughs> Now they do whatever's necessary to win and whether that's needing to be completely ugly and sneaking, you know, a gritty 1-0, they're capable of doing that. Um, They can punish you in so many different ways now, including by being quite resilient in defense. Um, And we've seen that this season when they lost Virgil van Dijk again. The consensus was, okay, season over for Liverpool. They've now lost the man that makes them tick at the back and they've won all their games um, or didn't lo- haven't lost any of their games without him uh, during the derby. The derby. I can't remember. See, I can't... The derby was 2-2. Was two, two. Yeah, see, two, two, I can't yeah. remember things that happened last week. <laughs> um, yeah, they haven't lost without him. Obviously, the added complication of now not having... Joe Gomez for pretty much the season uh, will test their powers of uh, responses to setbacks. But I think this game, I, I picked it because it showed me so much of the old Liverpool and gave me a sense of what the new Liverpool needed to be, which they have implemented. But it also, I think a lot of games against City showed them how close they were in a one-off game. And if you could just manage to get some consistency and greater control, you could match them and ultimately overtake them. Mm. And they certainly did as time went on. (laughs) Melissa, thank you very much for joining us on The the Greatest Games on the Blizzard. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, For more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Jonathan and I will be back next week for another great game. Uh, But until then, thank you very much. And thank you very much, Melissa. See you next week, everybody. Thank you.